Ronka Diddy. That means may you live long in the Hausa language. My name is B. Blozer. I'm from Tucson, Arizona. And I'd like to tell you a story. Meningi urged our double cab truck over washboard roads and cow tracks as we pressed north toward the border with Niger. In the front seat with his driver, my husband Carl leaned forward, searching. At the last mud-walled village, he'd heard that a group of nomads was camped nearer the border, and it was imperative that he find them before they moved on. He had to be sure that they were uh, immunized against smallpox, that they weren't apt to acquire smallpox or spread it in the next place where they went, probably across the border. In the back seat, I looked out through the fine dust at 20-foot termite hills, an occasional camel grazing on thornbush and stunted acacia. Our truck shuddered to a stop, blocked by a couple of tired stragglers from a herd of cattle. And I saw a group of people emerge from a cluster of huts nearby. They ran toward the road. Rockadiddy, rockadiddy. Then came the ululation, that long, loud, high-pitched trilling sound that expresses intense emotion. It was a common response to our white Dodge Power Wagon with the red, white, and blue USAID symbol on the side. U.S. Agency for International Development and Smallpox Eradication. These people crowded around our truck, and next to closest to my window were two women, a mother and daughter, perhaps. The older woman's eyes locked with mine and tears streamed down her cheeks. The younger woman might have been beautiful before smallpox but her all-covering scars allowed only a hint of a smile. Her vision had been spared, though, and it seemed like an urgent light burned in eyes framed by pockmarks where eyelashes should have been. I knew a lot about smallpox. I knew that over the ages this virus had changed the course of history itself. It had dethroned dynasties and enthroned others. I knew that it had killed close to half a billion people in one century alone. And I knew there was no treatment and no cure. Once the virus was inside the body, it would trick the immune system and it would do whatever it pleased. Once it finished using that person or that, that host, Leaving it damaged or dead, it had to quickly find the next host and the next host. I knew a lot about this virus that these two women did not. But they knew the smell of smallpox. Could sense it from yards away. The smell of decaying flesh like that of a dead animal. The young woman would have known its aches, chills, fever, and nausea. 
and she knew the stealth of smallpox. For after she had seemed recovered from these flu-like symptoms, the virus suddenly leapt from hiding. It planted sores in her throat and raced across her forehead and then the rest of her face, stealing her beauty. It raced down her body, the palms of her hands, the soles of her feet. It persisted and persisted until it filled the hideous sores with pus, white, then yellow, drawing flies with its putrid odor. She knew the aloneness of the isolation hut, and in that dark space knew hunger when sores in her mouth and throat made it too painful to swallow. She knew the agony of unseen lesions on internal organs and the agony of bedding brushing against pustules beginning to break down. And then, after defying the odds and surviving smallpox, she would have known emotional isolation as friends averted their eyes and worse, the horror in the eyes of her husband when he tried to look at her. These women didn't know any details about our grand plan for wiping smallpox from the entire planet. They didn't know about the intensity of recruitment and training in a race against time. They didn't know that just across the border in Niger, the program had just given its 100 millionth vaccination. But they knew the campaign against smallpox in a way that Carl and I never could. They knew that before the big white trucks came, a third of their family and friends infected with smallpox had died. And that nearly half of those who survived were left blinded. And as well as they knew anything, they knew that smallpox could easily have stolen this little boy who was playing at their feet, who they proudly held up to show me his skin smooth as silk, except for his smallpox vaccination scar. They proudly held him out. Rock-a-ditty, rock-a-ditty. As Meningi shifted gears and we were underway, the two women and their neighbors, arms still held high, watched our big white truck for a long time, not yet knowing that smallpox had visited their huts for the last time. That was one moment in time. Now let me show you others. I just want to give you a heads up. The next photo will be a little hard to look at. Um, it's similar to the woman I just described. This is one of the WHO photos of, of several folder, uh, a folder for a differential diagnosis that was given to the vaccinators in the field who were not especially, uh, who were trained only for the specific task of vaccinating. This child is, a sur he has survived smallpox, but as you can see, his life will never be the same. And the 
those scars are not just external. All the wars, all the genocides, all the diseases other than smallpox kill 150 to 200 million in the 20th century alone. And that figure equals less than half those killed by smallpox in the 20th century. So the plan was uh, global eradication. And the players were CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, um, USAID, who funded US Agency for International Development, and WHO was the umbrella um, body that would that was over the whole global program. Uh, we began in uh, the uh, West and Central Africa program, and that was a five-year goal to eradicate smallpox within this area inside the dark black line there. And the orange country, that's Nigeria, and we were stationed in the far north of Nigeria. Okay, I'm not having the best of luck with that remote. Um, the target was zero smallpox anywhere in the world. Um, and it was unbelievable hurdles. Every single country that had smallpox required a separate agreement. So uh, CDC had to negotiate separate agreement for every place, taking into consideration their culture, their health system, if they had a health system, their government structure, um, all of the topography, the, everything that was different about every single country. And then some of the hurdles were things like witch doctors who um, tried to frighten the people off from having smallpox vaccinations and um, uh, said that they would spread smallpox if people got vaccinated. This, uh, so we, okay, now that's working. Um, we were stationed up here at Kano State, near the border with Niger. And I'm gonna give you just a very um, gross oversimplification of the demographics of Nigeria. There are over 300 tri tribal groups in Nigeria and over 500 languages and dialects. So uh, I won't try to give you all of those. <laughs> um, the, in the north, north of those rivers, that was primarily the Hausa and Fulani groups, the primary language other than English, which was the official language for the entire country. Um, the primary language was Hausa, but also Arabic because this area is Muslim. The southwest section, primarily the Yoruba tribe, the Yoruba language, and many uh, tribal religions. The southeast was primarily the Igbo, the Igbo language, and primarily Christian. So the, uh, originally, Nigeria had been two separate countries, northern Nigeria and southern Nigeria which the British welded into one. Um, and uh, 
of course, you can foresee problems with a, a whole northern tier being Muslim and uh, uh, putting those two countries together, as kind of happened all over Africa when the Europeans sat down at the Berlin Conference table in the late 1800s and drew lines on a map. Um, so then after independence, uh, you had rival tribes, rival religions, and so on, all thrust into a nation to which they had no allegiance and in which often their interests were mutually exclusive. Um, the area in the southeast there, the, uh, this area especially, it was what then would uh, secede as Biafra. Let me give you just a quick visual context of where we were. So you see the color palette in northern Nigeria. Uh, this is a remnant of an old city wall. Uh, this is a slide where if we had time we would play my game of how many camels can you count. Um, it takes a little time. This was our uh, carport and Musa is, was our watchman. Charles, our son, was four years old when we moved to West Africa. And um, this is in the market, uh, the meat market area, meat slabs on the ground. Uh, this is one of the common means of uh, mass transit at that time. These were all 50 years ago, bear in mind. And um, this was the Amir's Palace. Uh, the Emir being the spiritual leader of all of that area of, uh, of Muslims. And it's a medieval mud-walled palace that houses over 700 people. Uh, the harem, uh, which is, no, we didn't see anybody dropping grapes into anybody's mouth or fanning or anything, any diaphanous veils. The harem, harem, harem just means the women's quarters of a polygamous man. And um, so there was one, the, uh, one wife that uh, we visited several times. This is Ginger, who was 18 months old when we moved to Africa. <laughs> and uh, here she is with the Emir's second son in the harem. And um, Aminu's mother, uh, the princess, I call her, she was the third wife, and she was a cosmopolitan young woman. She had been educated in London, but once she married the emir, she could never go outside these walls again on her own. Once in a while, <clears throat> excuse me, because of her educational level, the emir took her as the representative of all of his wives. He would take her to some diplomatic functions and so on. But back to what took us to Africa, I'm going to show you a one-minute video. And this is going to go really quickly. It's a very truncated thing from, uh, from some film I have of Carl and his vaccination teams. You'll get a quick view of my husband on the front end and then um, the Petajet a demonstration of use of the jet injector. and. Um, and then with which they could vaccinate a thousand people an hour. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and then you'll see 
them going through the lines being vaccinated and then a little bit with the needle uh, vaccination. Um, separately since women in that area were in the Muslim area were typically uh, many of them were not seen by any man outside their own family so now another um, smallpox up close this picture was shown later all over. They go into the marketplace. Have you seen anyone who looks like this? Have you seen anyone who looks like this? Anyone? Have you seen anyone who looks like this? You go everywhere showing this picture. Have you seen anyone who looks like this? All along the roads, in the markets, at the train station, everywhere. They took this picture and showed it in every nook and cranny of the world. Where, uh, where smallpox was, and showing identification of, of uh, and this child, by the way, has a mild to moderate case. This is day eight of the rash. And um, the next one, I'll show you this also. This picture, may not look as disturbing as the ones you've just seen, but you saw the typical color palette in northern Nigeria. Well, there were some areas of bright green. This is one corner of about, I guess, seven to eight acres of, of green. This is the mass grave of thousands upon thousands of Ipo who were slaughtered by the Halta in 1966. And there were several of these mass graves all across the north. Prior to this, prior to the slaughter of all of these Ipo Christians by the Muslims, the Christians had murdered the Sultan of Salkato, but they didn't just kill him. They rented, they took trucks with loudspeakers on the roofs and went through the streets of the towns. We have killed your Sultan. We have killed your Sultan. And who knows what had happened just before that that triggered that action. It, ever since independence, there was coup after coup 
attack after attack back and forth between these sides. So this, uh, this particular massacre was one of the last sparks that triggered the Nigeria-Biafra War. And um, the, um, during that war, uh, ceasefires would temporarily be called so that specimens from suspected smallpox cases could be brought out to laboratories on the federal side and um, more vaccine could be taken into Biafra. But our two-year assignment, what was supposed to be two-year assignment in Nigeria was cut short. We were suddenly being transferred to Equatorial Guinea, newly independent from Spain. You could take the, um, the areas this island of Fernando Po is now called Bioko. We, the capital of Santa Isabel is now Malabo. That was the capital of Equatorial Guinea. Then there's this mainland section, Rio Muni, and this tiny six square mile island of Anabon down here. This is a volcanic chain that stretches all the way, if you followed a thousand miles farther out in the South Atlantic, that's Santa Elena, where the British had imprisoned Napoleon. Um, but this entire landmass of Equatorial Guinea could fit inside the state of Maryland and have a little wiggle room left over. 250,000 people then, and it looked like a Hollywood set. They showed it, sent us the brochures beforehand. The State Department said, these beautiful brochures and uh, oh my ah oh, Carl this looks like it's just a, like a Hollywood set I can't believe we're going to move from the Sahara Desert near the Sahara down to this beautiful tropical paradise there would be six Americans in the country the Charge d'Affaires and his wife Carl and me and Charles and Ginger we were the only American residents in the country. So, and now this smallpox eradicator for some reason that was gonna need a top secret clearance. And um, I will never know what all he was required to do there besides smallpox. Um, most of his time was over here in Rio Muni. That's where most of the population was. And uh, of course, no phones, no we were at home on the island, and we couldn't communicate. Uh, he usually was not over there for more than a week at a time, would come home for a few days. I didn't know it yet, but I was about to need God more than I needed him at any point in my life. But you know, when we moved to Africa, and I knew we were going to be in a Muslim area, I knew it was very likely we might not find people to worship with. We might not find a, a church family of any kind. And we didn't, but we had said we would have our, we would always have our worship service in our home and keep, well, you know what? So much was going on and gradually 
Well, we left it to the evening because a few other people would come by and, hey, you want to go to the Kano Club for a burger? Um, well, I might have just made the communion bread, but, well, we'd wait till evening. And evening come, you'd be tired, so you rush through a few songs, read a scripture, have a, have a prayer, and take our communion, and get to bed. A few Sundays went by like that, and one Sunday, just forgot. Hadn't made some decision to leave God out of my life. And here we were in a place where it would have been really, um, if I could have prayed, what a difference it would have made. Well, I'm happy to say that in a few years, it came back to where God was waiting for us all the time. I had no idea what would befall us over the next year when we moved to this island. Shouts of rejoicing at independence had turned to screams of the tortured. This man, Francisco Macias Ngema, against all expectations, had won the election as the first president. Uh, uh, Equatorial Guinea had gained independence 18 months earlier, and Macias, um, six months after he became president, six months after independence, he started murdering anybody who could be a threat to him. Well, who could be a threat? Okay, any of the people who had been leaders in the independence movement. Anybody who was looked up to as a leader of any sort, um, tribal elders, tribal chieftains, who people looked up to. And you didn't just murder that person, you had to murder their entire family and, um, and sometimes burn down their entire village where they were from. He, um, he started out it was a tribal thing initially. He was from the Fong tribe. He started murdering mostly the booby. But then he started in on his own tribe, eventually his own clan and his own family eventually. He cut off all journalistic reporting, which is why I say you're hearing a story that few have ever heard. He um, shut down the press, denied all visas for journalists, um, any mail that went out, that, except what, of course, we sent in the diplomatic pouch, um, had to be left at the post office open. You couldn't seal anything. Didn't want to give them the trouble of having to unseal it in order to read it. And also, then Spain made it a violation of their State Secrets Act uh, for anybody, for any of their journalists to make any mention of Equatorial Guinea in the Spanish press. So it was basically sealed off. Then, because people were flooding uh, out of, off that island trying to escape his horrible regime, 
He burned all the boats. They had had a vital fishing industry. The brochure we had gotten was, oh, noted for fish, for shrimp and prawns, and uh, coastal waters teeming with fish. Uh, and uh, I had pictures of all these fishing boats. There wasn't a boat in sight. He had, he had destroyed all of them to keep people from escaping. Um, locals were not allowed to talk to us. We could not interact with a local person in any way, including not being able to see the doctor one night when Charles was screaming in abdominal pain because uh, he was local. Um, he imprisoned, he expelled or imprisoned all the clergy, boarded up the churches, and um, um, prohibited families from giving their children Christian names, and they would be, sub, excuse me, subject to severe punishment if they did. Then, of course, we had to, um, he was felt threatened by anybody with education above the eighth grade, so those people started being destroyed. And um, so by the time he, um, spoiler alert, <laughs> we can't get into all the things he did, but by the time Macias was overthrown, nine years after he became president, he had basically gotten rid of a third of his population. He had killed proportionately more than did Hitler. He was, um, it's a tragic, it's a tragic thing. So the streets were empty. You couldn't imagine a street in Africa without teeming people and hearing uh, music, uh, singing and drumming and, and shouting uh, coming through the, out the doors and, and bicycles and everything crowding the streets. They were empty, partially because the Minister of Health, who Carl had to work with, his nickname was The Butcher. And he, over, he, he was a surgeon, so he knew how to torture with precision. He headed up a youth militia, the Juventudes and Marcha con Macias. And the Juventud was a youth militia of ages, they were armed, but they were ages seven to 30. And they roamed the streets, and as people said, if they ran out of money, they withdrew it. They made a withdrawal from anybody that happened to cross their path and, um, and beat them up with clubs or hauled them off to the, uh, the prison and reported them for some, uh, something. You imagine a seven-year-old uh, actually doing these kinds of things. This picture was taken from our corner and this next picture is also from our corner, just to emphasize how, how empty and silent, just an eerie silence in this place. And it was beautiful, masqueraded as a tropical paradise, um, hidden in the soupy mist is a nearly 10,000 foot volcano. Um, the, uh, this is a 2007 photo. 
uh, so the town was much smaller than it was a one square mile capital city. So now, the smallpox eradicator became one of only two officials in the smallest U.S. embassy in the world, just down the block from the huge gray bunker of a Russian embassy, and um, occasionally would serve as char acting charge d'affaires. The favorites there were the Soviets, the North Koreans, and the Chinese. And when you have a capital city that measures just a hair over one square mile and one restaurant, world politics get played out on a mighty small stage, we knew when the Russians and the Chinese were and were not speaking to each other. <laughs> so we, could, we saw everything being played out. Um, but why you'd think, well, why in this tiny, tiny place, this tiny, insignificant country, why would there be so many embassies there? Well, it was a strategic location. This was long before the discovery of oil. And it was, um, if you remember that map, it was a very strategic location for discovering what the other guy was up to. So uh, our embassy was a listening post and everybody else's was probably a listening post. Um, the consequences for, um, for Carl's work, the, um, since locals were not allowed to speak to foreigners, the United Nations experts that Macias had invited in to help shore up the uh, infrastructure and all of this after 7,000 Spaniards were evacuated, they were never allowed to speak to the people they were there to advise. Uh, one example is the agricultural expert. He was an expert in tropical agriculture. He'd been brought in to, um, uh, to advise he was never allowed to talk to any of the people he was there to advise. And he was never allowed to visit a farm. So after weeks and weeks of sitting in a chair in some building, he gave up and left the country. And that was pretty much the way everything happened. For Carl to be able to talk to the vaccinating vaccinators, the vaccination teams, the charge negotiated with the president to get permission for Carl to talk to and work with the, the teams. Um, he had to sign for, uh, the president signed for boat tickets when they uh, would take the once a month ship, uh, Spanish ship from uh, the island over to the mainland. And, um, and the most extreme example that Carl uh, encountered was that when the hospital on the mainland ran out of surgical gloves, Macias had to sign for them to requisition more surgical gloves from the dispensary on the island. So uh, it was, um, besides being a mad murdering president, he was micromanaging everything and uh, nothing functioned. <coughs> so uh, this is Carl in the center, 
and with the, some of the vaccinators and with Dr. Martin Bradley, who was an epidemiologist and uh, worked with him on occasion. Uh, despite all of those things, the smallpox measles program was uh, very successful and it was the only viable aid program by any nation that, that got off the ground and, and remained uh, active. It was, it was the only thing America had going there. We had this little two-person embassy. The Russians had about 36. The North Koreans had about nine or 10. Uh, the Chinese started out with four and were bringing in more and more. And, um, and of course, they're, and they were supplying, well, the Soviets supplied some fishing trawlers, uh, which, uh, everyone was sure were outfitted for things other than fishing. Um, and uh, so this smallpox program was all America had going. And so when the time came near for our tour to end, the ambassador over in Cameroon, he was accredited to Equatorial Guinea, and um, he argued from a Cold War perspective of we needed to stay there because of uh, America needed this. Um, so, but it worked out otherwise. So, with Carl on the front line between human and microbe, I felt like our family was on a front line of a different sort. Some of the some of the consequences at home, and these can in no way compare with what the local people suffered. Um, they were, I guess, looking back on them, maybe you could just call them inconveniences. But when we unpacked our household shipment, the Comandante uh, of the Guardia Nacional uh, came and there were seven soldiers with their rifles and fixed bayonets crowded into our little living room. And as we unpacked every box that we opened, they thrust their bayonets into all our possessions. Tupperware bowls became colanders. <laughs> and uh, Carl, Charles's and is mainly Charles's building blocks at that point. They were riddled with bayonet holes. Um, uh, everything, you know, uh, photo albums, old family photos that are pierced with, with bayonet holes. And uh, so that was one of our first things. Um, there were watchdogs outside homes and offices, and they reported, they uh, spies in three-piece suits, they would be, Whereas ambassadors might wear the guayabera, that uh, guayabera, the cotton shirt, these guys would be in this soupy Equatorial Guinea air in a three-piece suit with a tie trying to hide behind a tree <laughs> and with their notepad <laughs> and uh, reported what we did, where we went, who came to our house, where they went when they left and all that sort of thing. So it was, um, it was uh, tension. Uh, then one night uh, we were sheltered in the embassy residence during um, the, the Juventud 
had uh, been let loose by the, the butcher to take out after the Portuguese community and were beating them up in the streets. And uh, we were sheltered in the, in the embassy and um, everybody else off to sleep uh, that night, all six of us, you know, all the Americans. And um, I kind of tiptoed through the darkened expanse of the embassy thinking, you know, why can't I pray? I need to pray. Why can't I pray? Um, I was listening to a uh, I was listening to a cassette tape a while back. I found one that was labeled Charles's birthday. It was his sixth birthday, and he had some Nigerian playmates. A lot of Nigerians were there as contract laborers, and um, so he because they were not. Equatorial Guineans, we were allowed to interact with them, although they were afraid to have contact with the embassy people, but they allowed their children to play. And I found this cassette of Charles's birthday and pulled it up, and the, this group of about six or seven little children, and what do you think they were singing? Trust and obey, for there's no other way. I thought, oh, I didn't remember that. It was, and uh, it was just so, so touching. And uh, um, that's what they sang for Charles's birthday. <laughs> so the dictator was replacing smallpox in my mind as the antagonist to our country in our family's drama. Um, and then the final, the final thing was uh, when um, Charles was in front of the house and made a bow and arrow with a little stick and a rubber band, and they tried to haul him off to prison. They said he was making weapons dangerous to the Republic of Equatorial Guinea. And um, the charge d'affaires, when, when Carl couldn't get the guys to to leave. The charge came to the house, met with the 20-year-old protocol officer of the country, broke the weapon, destroyed the weapon, and uh, I still have it. I still have that broken, <laughs> broken bow and arrow. Uh, so Carl felt like it was time for the kids and me to get out, and so we were evacuated to Cameroon, and um, the day before, the day before we left, one of Charles's little playmates, well, Charles came running in the door, and he said, "My friend said the government's going to kill every person in this country." And after we were evacuated, it took several weeks before uh, Charles and Ginger, although I think Ginger was more picking up. On what on Charles's fear, and uh, but before they both started yelling, "There's the police!" or "There's the Guardia!" every time they saw a uniform of any kind. And how old were the kids at that time? At that time, then Charles had just turned six, oh. and uh, I, well, Ginger was just barely three. Charles was. Uh, 
getting close to six and a half when mm -hmm. we were evacuated. And this is Charles with some of the little boys in Cameroon after our evacuation. And you know, it was a real, it was God's mercy we were allowed to live to come back to where he'd been waiting for us. And a few years later, we would have a, start a congregation in our home in Saudi Arabia, winding up with 50 people meeting in our home. They were other Americans who were there working um, but uh, we would, you know, make comments to our Muslim friends um, that some were accepting of. And, um, you know, I just think that one of the most, one of the most encouraging passages to me as I think back on, on our time there and the fact that I could have had so much more influence in a positive way if I had been connected and stayed connected with the Lord during that time. I love 1 Kings 15 5. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. I just think, what language, you know, uh, to be used about adultery and murder and, and uh, how God still looked at David. And um, I just find that, um, it's just, very comforting to me, even though I will always ache that um, I, I could have been the hands and feet of Jesus. I'll give you just a quick look at some of the last smallpox cases in the world. These were in Bangladesh, which Carl was called to Bangladesh when they were working on finishing off smallpox. Many of these blankets along along the railway uh, railroad platform, Carl had to pick up every blanket, and often it would be, you know, a dead body under there. Um, these were women preparing food on the porch of the isolation hospital uh, that Carl set up in Bangladesh, um, and then someone who was immune could carry the food to the inside for any of those who were able to, to eat. Can you read that? Here is a camp of smallpox. Don't come here without vaccination. And remember this photo, the last the last case of naturally acquired smallpox was diagnosed in October of 1977 in Somalia. But for two more years, WHO workers were going throughout the world. Have you seen anyone who looks like this? Have you seen anyone who looks like this? They had to be sure um, 
And it was, so it was 1980 before WHO declared the world smallpox free. And still, vigilance is required about, uh, against the possibility of samples of the virus being unleashed accidentally or otherwise from the secure laboratories, one in uh, the U.S. and one in Russia. And those are the legal laboratories, those are the legal places, the places we know smallpox is, but no one thinks that someone else hasn't gotten hold of any. And this was the, uh, when we were in Arabia, uh, we were in Arabia when uh, Carl, uh, when smallpox was declared eradicated, and Carl was able to go back and visit, and uh, this boarded up, the boarded up hospital. So, what now? Well, I think God allowed us to stamp out smallpox. It's the only human disease that has ever been eradicated. It was, it's referred to as a medical moonshot, um, the most significant event that's ever happened in, in public health. And of course, we know the need for the great physician is far greater than the need for clean water and, and freedom from disease. But I would just ask, please, please pray for the people of Equatorial Guinea and Nigeria and places like that. There's so many of them around the world where people are under the thumb of a despotic ruler who's grabbed all the, grabbed the power and the, um, the resources and uh, is subjecting people to such horrors. And, um, and also for the, for the people running for their lives from these places. And I think, pray for us as a people that when we give a cup of cold water, that we do it not only in Jesus' name, but with Jesus' love. Thank you so much for attending and um, I will put up this information um, if um, this information is based on a book I've written which we don't know I don't know when it will be published and a lot of people say oh I'm gonna I, I want that book when it comes out well, um, I have a couple of notebooks, one up here at the front and one at the back. If you would like to put your name, your email, I promise you, you, <laughs> uh, you won't be inundated with uh, newsletters from me. You'll probably think, who was that woman? Uh, let's see, I heard a couple of years ago there was a, <laughs> I wonder if she's died. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because I don't like being on the internet, I don't like doing the social media thing, so you will not be bombarded, believe me. Uh, but if you would like to put your email address on there so that when I do have news of pending publication, uh, the manuscript is in London right now being evaluated. Um,
but when I do have news, I could let you know. And uh, I do have some, um, and I have a website if you'd like to go to it. And um, uh, so uh, feel free. And I also have uh, uh, some slips back there. If there, I'd like to know if there is any question that you had that I didn't address in the presentation. Um, you could just write that down on one of the little slips that's back there. And I guess we have about three minutes if, uh, to three if anybody wants to ask questions now. How far is the, is the Nigerian Christian Hospital from where you were in the Ubo area? Uh, well, I would Oni guess Oni it's probably about 800 miles oh, or so, okay. I would guess. Yeah. Um, Nigeria is about the size of the state of Texas. Okay. And so, you know, you could uh, yeah. you drive for days across Texas. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's quite a, quite a distance. Ginger? I think you mentioned something about that the current ruler is on the UN security. Is what is on the UN security? Yes, uh, the Equatorial Guinea is not a lot better off than it was then, even though they discovered oil and there's there are freeways and high-rise hotels, mostly empty. Um, the nephew who overthrew Macias is now the longest ruling. He's been about 40 years. He's been in power since 79 when he overthrew his uncle. And, um, and he's, he was Macias's right-hand man, oversaw the torture personally. He was governor of Black Beach Prison, one of the worst in the world certainly one of the worst five in Africa, which was, it was half a mile from our house. Um, and he, um, uh, you know, oil was discovered. Equatorial Guinea is the third largest sub-Saharan, uh, uh, largest oil producer in sub-Saharan Africa. And the billions and billions are just going into his pocket They've, he's done all, built all these palaces and freeways, and he owns the construction companies, or his family does. Um, unfortunately, his, now he is, he's in his 80s and has cancer, and, um, but his son, Theodorin, was a student right here at Pepperdine. <laughs> I should say he was enrolled. He attended very few classes. He uh, was, uh, he may have been in this very room, I don't know. <laughs> He's probably going to be the next dictator. Um, he, uh, he bought a mansion right down the road here in Malibu, uh, which that year it was the second most expensive property sold in California the year he bought that. And he, uh, uh, he, he was here at Pepperdine uh, just taking, I think English was the only class he signed up for. I meant to go to the registrar and see if I could yeah. get some information. Um, 
but um, he he attended very few classes. He would he had his bevy of women and his his huge fleet of sports cars, uh, yachts. Um, he's he's an international playboy, and uh, the U.S. confiscated uh, a lot of things. Um, he gave up his mansion because he it was a a deal. He'd give up the mansion so that he could keep his million-dollar Michael Jackson collection. Oh and um, he's and now, let's see, how many different countries have he, because he keeps reassembling big fleets of like Bugattis and Veyrons and all, all of these cars. Um, and France, I think, is the most recent one to confiscate um, fleets of cars and uh, but he is, he's being, he's being groomed to um, be the, uh, the next dictator. So, um, so we just pray, pray for those people. Um, they, uh, despite the high rise, um, you know, the Hilton now, and all of these things, mostly sitting empty, and the, uh, some people who have gone back there, some of the native, who many of them now live in Spain, uh, some who've gone back there, uh, I saw an article not too long ago, he said within two blocks of this huge high rise, which he couldn't believe was there, two blocks from there, the people have no electricity, they have no potable water, no education, uh, nothing. All, all the money is just in the hands of these very few people. So, interesting to read about that. So, but we have the victory, right? <laughs> Thank you so much.